This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this, another episode of the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, The Vern, and for this episode, folks, we are going to go deep into orbit. We are going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick's 1968 masterpiece, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And joining me on this uh, expedition, uh, he is my uh, friend Poole to my uh, Dave Bowman. I brought with me Damien Riley of Riley on Film. Damien, thank you very much, sir, for joining me on this. Oh, you're welcome. I brought my computer and I've named it Hal. Oh, no. Well, I'm a little afraid here. I, I, I heard some... Is that like Siri? <laughs> it is a lot like Siri, except if you, if you do a really complicated procedure, you can shut it down. Okay, good. Okay, all right. Well, th- thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Um, I remember. Well, I remember the first time I ever talked to you was on the uh, Lambcast. Yes. Talking about Howard the Duck. Oh right, that was the one you picked. Yep. Yeah. Don't, don't worry. I, you know, I won't. I won't beat you up over it like everybody else did. <laughs> okay, appreciate that. <laughs> no, but I really enjoyed talking to you on there, and then I saw you start up a. A podcast with uh, Darren Lucas from Movie Reviews 101. So, do me a favor there, Damien. Just tell the listeners out there all about your podcast and other things you do out there. Okay, thank you so much. Um, it's great to be on here, uh, Vern. I've been listening to some of your back episodes, and you do a great job. Thank you. Sir. Um, you're welcome. Um, I uh, yeah, I met Darren online. We used to review movies together, and uh, then we met Movie Rob, or I did anyway. They knew each other already, but we just would go back and forth, and there was a Stephen King blogathon, and I picked The Silver Bullet because I really liked that werewolf movie from my youth, and uh, I got involved in it, and then I sort of learned you know, the whole, the ropes from those two guys about movie reviewing and sort of this little world that exists out there on Twitter and in general, and I've met a lot of people. But other than that, one thing that is kind of up and coming. Oh, well, my blog is called RileyOnFilm.com, and one thing that's kind of up and coming that I'm sort of excited about is uh, using more music and special effects and things like that uh, in a podcast, and that's the Damian Riley podcast that I started doing, and I just short named it the DRP. So I've been recording that uh, just to my computer, no guests or anything like that. I- I've had a couple guests, but Mostly, uh, it's just me experimenting and seeing what I can do um, with editing and things like that. So that's a lot of fun. And I review movies on that as well. They're only about eight to ten minutes each. So well, that's me. Definitely check that out. Uh, you can listen to that, I believe, like on Potomac, Stitcher, iTunes, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, you can get to all my stuff through my Twitter, which is Riley on Film as well. That's okay. my username there. So it's all linked through that. And every time I have a new post of any kind, I, I put it up there. So. All right. Very cool. Well, let's do this, good sir. Let's just take a small break right now. We'll hear some ads from some other great podcast shows. And then uh, let's blast off into space, okay? Totally. Without. We'll return after these messages. Hello, everybody. This is Jason. And Aaron. And we are the hosts of the For Better or Worse podcast. 
Like most couples, we have pretty different tastes. There's a lot of things we agree on, of course, but it can be pretty difficult to find something to watch at the end of the day. She likes comedies, love stories, and dramas. And he likes anime, horror, sci-fi, and fantasy. So we both thought it would be fun to force each other to watch our favorite movies, shows, or anything else we can think of and record it here for you guys. The show is a lot of fun and it's not always torture. Sometimes we actually come around to each other's side. We would love for you guys to give us a shot. So download for better or worse anywhere you listen to your favorite shows and join us in the fun. We can't wait to share our experiences with you. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. All right, guys. So we need to record our top three reasons why you should listen to French Toast Sunday podcast. Number three should definitely be our diverse opinions. Number two should probably be our top three lists that we do every week. No, it's got to it's got to be Mark Wahlberg. What about Gwyneth Paltrow's head? It's got to be fighting the sadness in the swamp of sadness. Full frontal. Stories about being lost at sea. Brendan Fraser being underground. Helen Mirren's boobs. Baltimore accents as heard in The Wire. Wonderclaws. Crepes. Character studies. Wait, 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 guys. What about movies? No. Tree rape. Hmm. Tree rape? Yeah, I like tree rape. Tune in every Friday for a new episode of French Toast Sunday Podcast, brought to you by us at FrenchToastSunday.com. Clothing made out of Burger King wrappers. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. Now, the movie that we are going to be looking at is 2001, A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Um, now, Damien, what is your history with Kubrick? Oh, he is uh, a very visual director. Uh, you know, he's probably most well-known by people my age and younger i'm 48 but you know <laughs> i had to admit it but no but people my age and younger he's probably really known for the shining i mean that's what he everybody knows that's a stanley kubrick film he's known for this 2001 space odyssey and many other movies he's a guy that like put his whole life into these films as he was making them and they stand today as incredible films that i think he's really like you know, he's sort of like a guru, like at, at film schools, probably people look at his stuff. There's probably classes in Kubrick. So, I mean, you can't really say much about him critical. He's just an incredible guy that really changed the landscape of filmmaking. Yeah, I like the fact, too, that he made a lot of different movies. I mean, before this yes. one, uh, 2001, he made Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop yes. Worrying and Love the Bomb, brilliant dark comedy satire film. And then mm -hmm. he made 2001, which changes the landscape of mm -hmm. movie making and special effects. And then afterwards, he made A Clockwork Orange. So oh, yeah. very different films right there. Uh, each one he yeah. makes is just 
completely different, and that's what I love about it. But even though mm-hmm. he makes different films, you can still tell that it's a Kubrick picture. Mm-hmm. You know, because of the use, because of his uses of zoom lens and his tracking mm. shots are just yes. Im- impeccable right there. Um, yeah. Well, let's just dive in here a little bit into 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, he collaborated, Kubrick collaborated with Arthur C. Clarke on the screenplay for this. Uh, this was based right. on Clark's short story, The Sentinel. And the cool thing is, is that while Kubrick was making the film, uh, Clark was busy working on the novel of 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I do kind of want to read just because it explains mm. everything that was more ambiguous mm. in Kubrick's version of the, of the story there. Um, yeah. Now... Usually, I give a little, like, you know, plot synopsis of the movie before mm-hmm. we talk about the scenes. But yeah. uh, it's really kind of difficult for me to get into a plot synopsis because <laughs> it's really not much of a story driven film. It doesn't. Because. It's true. Well, and maybe you'll disagree with me on this one, though, because con- the conflict doesn't really happen till towards the end. Right. Oh. Uh, they're basically trying to find this monolith. This uh, astronauts are trying to find this, I guess, item in space that they know nothing about. And these mm. two astronauts are trying to find out more about it, though. Um, and then their computer goes kind of haywire and crazy towards the end of it there. Um, but I do want to ask you this, Damien. What, in your opinion, is this movie essentially about? Huh. Well, it's the meaning of life. No, <laughs> that's 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 a hard question. Really hard question. I would say um, this movie is about, uh, and and I and I cheated a little bit because I read a few articles about it before the show. But but just looking at it in general, I mean, it ends with a fetus, and so it's almost like the end is sort of the beginning. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I got out of it. And and then you see in the beginning that you have these monkeys that are killing another monkey. And I I think that that's supposed to show that the monolith is producing something mean in them and making them kill and hate their own. Uh, then, you, you know, it flash forwards to space and the most of the movie is in space. And when you get up there, you've got this uh, artificial intelligence computer called HAL. And I couldn't help but think, and we'll talk a little bit about that sequence because uh, uh, you gave it to me as homework, so I'm ready. But, uh, you know, the, the sequence where they're kind of done with the computer and they, they, they have to shut it down. And, and I couldn't help but sort of remember that scene where when the black monolith got involved, they all killed their, the monkeys all killed their friend. Well, now they're in outer space, and they're sort of killing the computer. So I, I don't know if, if it means that they're evolving, like this is a picture of man evolving. Like you said, I would like to read the Arthur C. Clarke book because it probably explains a lot of that. Yeah, well, apparently from the movie and also the book, the sequence of Dawn of Man, uh, when mm-hmm. the monkeys first learn to use the tools, like the bones as tools right there, um, I don't believe that the monolith was trying to evoke anger and hatred 
into the monkeys. Okay. They were just, I think the monolith is just trying to have them, you know, use their weapons around them so they could evolve. But when that started happening and one of the monkeys was able to use that tool and is able to actually, you know, kill animals, because in the book it explains it more as the monkey who's known as Moonwalker in the book, they were just gathering berries. They lived side by side with the animals and mm-hmm. they had no idea what animals were considered to be food or not. But then after the model mm-hmm. comes along, then they have the idea that, hey, we're could be a little bit more advanced, so we can go ahead and kill these other creatures for food. So when he gets to that sequence when he's at the water in the hole and he's yelling and screaming and people are trying to attack him and he ends mm. up beating the other monkey to death right there. I think that's more mm. about being ter- that's more about protecting your territory, your home. Oh, okay. Oh, and I think that's all that he was doing right there is trying to protect okay. his landscape right there. He's 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 starting to understand and know his environment and he wants to mm. try to protect that particular piece of land. At least in my opinion. That works, yeah. A lot of things I think could work for this because there's not a lot of dialogue. It just shows you pictures. There's like no dialogue into like the first, I guess, like 20 minutes. There's like no dialogue. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just go on right now and talk about one uh, one of your favorite sequences of this movie. And that has to be right at the moment after uh, the monkey flips the bone in the air. And the yeah. bone comes down, and it uh, does a great jump cut to a satellite floating. Mm-hmm. And then we see the the stars. We see the stars, we see space. Uh, the blue Daniel Waltz comes in. Mm-hmm. And we get to see all of the, I guess, all the astronauts going mm-hmm. through the space stations. Uh, there's that beautiful shot of that one lady kind of walking upside down. Um, but I should ask, I, sh- I should t- t- talk to you about the statement mm-hmm. here. Why did you pick this section? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like I said, I, I like all the space footage. I think he did an amazing job. I was a really, I, I still am a fan of Star Wars. I started to say I was a fan, of, but I was a big fan of, of 77 Star Wars. And I was eight years old, so that was like, you know, every young boy's dream movie. And I remember uh, the way that the Death Star looked, it it resembled a lot um, like the control center where the, where the uh, astronauts were, you know, monitoring the spacewalk where they were, you could see that little window where they were looking out. And I I thought that looks exactly like the Death Star. Yes. (laughs) So, yeah. So I think they, you know, it was inspiration to George Lucas, no doubt. Um, But, what you were saying, when it cuts from the bone to that space scene, I just think it's starting to show how man has used tools. It's like anthropology, so to speak, uh, to get himself into space. And I remember one thing in particular that came a little bit after that when um, they're walking sort of like in anti-gravity. And as they walk, the whole ship is like moving or I'm not sure what the illusion is supposed to be, but it looks like he's walking inside a tire, sort of. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And I think that that was so ingenious for the time. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what's happening there, if the ship is moving or if, 
if he's just walking around the ship, he's probably walking around the ship more. Think about it. But, I, uh, I yeah. think that for uh, I'll interrupt you quickly though. I think the actual space station is supposed to mimic uh, the gravity of Earth, or it's supposed to. Okay. It's doing that right now, so it can actually keep people on the floor instead of like yes. having them float everywhere. And I like the yes. fact too that it does that instead of just having a button saying anti-gravity or gravity button. Mm-hmm. So that makes more sense because uh, Kubrick, along with Clark, they did actually work with a lot of like NASA officers and people at NASA mm. to make this look as realistic as possible. Yeah, it really is realistic. And it's funny because, you know, I mean, obviously, if there's anybody listening that, you know, hasn't seen it or... Maybe it's been a long time since you've seen it or you're not interested in it. Um, I can tell you that it's not a normal movie. Like we were saying, there's really not a lot of dialogue for a long time. And then when there is dialogue, it's for a specific part of the story, not the whole story. And uh, so in a way, I think a lot of people – and tell me what you think, Vern. I think a lot of people would probably find it hard to watch. Yeah, you have to understand this too, folks, that uh, this is a movie – that is really just made for cinema. It's mm-hmm. really meant to be seen in theaters because when it begins, it begins for about five or six or seven minutes of nothing but this tone. Yeah. This Jonas tone. Uh, there's like a black screen, and all I hear is like this tone, and it goes higher up in pitch, it goes lower, but mm. you're just staring at this black screen and you're thinking, yes. what the hell's going on? But if you're in a theater and you're hearing all the song around you, to me, it would be just much more better experience here. I should mention, too, uh, we did a poll of movies that we wanted to see in theaters. And mm-hmm. I picked – we in this poll, there was this movie, uh, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, um, Akira, uh, Rear mm-hmm. Window, and Lawrence of Arabia. Movies that we want to see be re-released in theaters. And you can never do a movie like 2001 in theaters again because it has a big overture. There's intermission. um, Long stretches without any dialogue. The only recent Mm -hmm. movie that tried to duplicate this was WALL-E because it didn't didn't have any dialogue in that movie for a while too. So it's a very ambitious movie. I would not mind if a movie tried to do this again. I know, I think uh, Tarantino tried this a little bit with Hateful Eight with his 70mm Roadshow because they had intermission and that one as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this type of, like, bold filmmaking, uh, I don't know. I'll ask you this here, uh, Damien. Do you think, like, uh, someone like Christopher Nolan could do an epic movie like this because... He probably could because Dunkirk, while it does have dialogue, it's not really character development dialogue. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he'd probably be a good guy to do it. And he's got the, the planes, you know, the the sounds of the planes are like the dialogue at some points. And um, so, yeah, he'd be a good guy to consider for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're getting back to 2001 there and yeah. these uh, space watch sequences, Damien. Um mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned before, like, my favorite shot in that sequence is when the, uh, I guess, stewardess is Mm. walking 
into like this like I guess it's wall or this circular wall, the circular room I guess, and she's able oh. to just walk on the wall. Yeah. And then go into another room. And then it's great too because there's that great shot of like her looking like she's upside down and then the mm-hmm. camera turns. Um now I I have to ask you this, Jamie here, like was she actually on the ceiling there, did they actually have anti-gravity <laughs> boots right there? Uh, you're, was... you're, I gotta say, you're asking the wrong guy because there were so many scenes in that where I was wondering, how did they do that? Yeah. Um, what was the one? Uh, there's one where, yeah, when when the pod is out in space and he's coming out of it and he has like a red helmet. Remember, mm-hmm. like, you can see his, you can see his red helmet, and then he. He almost looks like a beetle or something, and then he he comes out, but it, it really does look like he's floating out. And I yeah. thought, how is he? They must have had him on a rig or something. I know in later movies, recent movies, they have gone underwater and done those types of like in Gravity and such. They they've actually filmed those underwater and then oh. they superimpose a background. Yeah, so that looks real. That looks really cool. But this didn't. I mean, it wasn't like amazing special effects, but for that time. I'm thinking, how did it look like he's floating out of there? I just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah. And then there were other times where it did look like they were walking on the sides or the ceiling, and they would just change. So it must have been the room moving. I think he does something with the room moving, and then there's a hallway that doesn't move that leads up to it, like a passageway that leads up to a circle, and they're in the circle, but the circle is actually moving. Uh, but the you know, the way there is not, so it creates sort of an optical illusion, but I don't know. I'd love to read a book on how they did that. I do know, okay, uh, that sequence where I think it is uh, Frank Poole, he's running, and that kind of centrifuge type of thing is mm. like, it's like constantly, it's, it looks like he's almost on like a human-sized yes. hamster wheel. Well, apparently, yeah. that was a full set. Okay, so it was moving. Yeah, so I do remember seeing like, uh, behind-the-scenes footage of them actually building that set of him. Right. For that one shot of him, like a POV shot, it's behind his back. Uh, and then I think for just the other standard shots, uh, that was just like a stationary camera. Uh, I'm, I'm not completely sure about that. Uh, yeah. I do urge all the listeners to go back and watch mm-hmm. some of those documentaries about there. Um, I'm not going to get into major themes about this well maybe we, we could get to like major themes about this uh because mm-hmm. i know a lot of people listening to this are thinking that oh this movie's so long it's so <laughs> so dull nothing happens there uh but the really cool thing that i think people should watch the movie for is to know that this movie came out before we ever went to the moon mm. and i know there's that conspiracy theory how people are saying that kubrick is the one that filmed the moon landing. Oh, and he, I, and he had to keep it quiet there. And I'm thinking that if that was true, Kubrick would not want to keep that quiet for so long because he's the filmmaker that really wants you to see and understand his work. And if yeah. he did fake the moon landing, he'd be the one that to say, yeah, that was me. All right. I, I, I can't imagine he'd be quiet about that. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, basically we threw something out there far enough and it landed on another rock. I mean, I don't I don't really understand why people have a hard time believing that, but they want to believe in a in, you know, some kind of a you know, theory, conspiracy theory and, you know, 
I have members of my own family that think we didn't mock on the moon. So that's why I, I get a little frustrated because at yeah. Thanksgiving and such, we have our conversations. But, you know, I mean, no way. Yeah. Come on. So well, as you Damien here, what what is your favorite, I guess, spacewalk section in 2001 Space Odyssey? Well, you know, I, pre I pretty much mentioned the, uh, the, the coolest parts. You know, when they're out in space, that's just that's probably my favorite part is when he's just floating. I wondered why he didn't have a tether on him. That Good was point. a little strange. <laughs> he didn't have a jetpack either. So yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but no. Um, I mean, I find all that stuff creepy. Like I mentioned, Gravity before. Have you seen Gravity? I have seen Gravity. Yes, and I think that's another yeah. movie too that's really just best seen in theaters. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, when they're up there, when Sandra Bullock's up there, and. Uh, who is the other character George of emotions? Clooney. George Clooney, yeah. They, they, you know, they start drifting away. I mean, it's you feel it in the pit of your stomach. You're oh, like, very much so. Wow, because that's nothing out there. There's just nothing for eons and eons and eons. Nothing. It's crazy. I mean, of course, they'll die like a normal person would if they don't have sustenance, but still, they'll continue floating and floating and floating. So that's really crazy. So this movie is sort of starting. I can't think of anything that was done that was anywhere near this uh detail about space and spacewalking and i know this film is in like the national archives like it was chosen as being special so it's in the national film archives uh the united states and i'm sure in other countries probably too uh but this is one that it, the spacewalking alone is worth watching it for and then there's sort of a drama inside that's going on somewhat relating to how so that, that's pretty much all I, I really had to say about the spacewalking, but I just, I mean, I think it's incredible, don't you? Yeah, no, I, I, I fully agree with that, and I like the fact, too, that it does take its time before any conflict or major story comes in there, because yeah. you are just, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for right now, you are just overly stimulated yeah. with all these space sequences. Yeah. Now, I remember seeing this movie on, like, a very small, like, 25-inch tube TV growing up, oh, and I, I was still over-impressed with the visual details, and I, you know, like you, yes. said before, like you said before, I've seen Star Wars way before this one, too. Yeah. Um, I knew about this movie, but didn't watch it until I was probably like 12, 13 years old, and mm -hmm. I put it on, and I was just completely enraptured, especially that whole blue Daniel sequence where the yeah. ship's and everyone is kind of going towards the music. I do yeah. know that Kubrick actually did have an original score used mm. for those sequences, but when it played for audiences, they didn't much care for it. So then mm. he took it home and recut it uh, with the uh, the Blue Danny Waltz, and it mm. became a, I guess, a visual masterpiece, in my opinion, there. Yeah. Now... During the course of the movie, uh, we you you find out that these astronauts are they found they found they find out about this object. Uh, they call it the TK something. I forget exactly the, the full name of it, and they're trying to find this element. Uh, Doctor Haywood Floyd uh, conducts a I guess an expedition to find mm -hmm. out this planet. And a bunch of astronauts go into this uh, moon crater. They find it there. It emits this strange piercing sound. Mm -hmm. And then we cut to many months later. 
there's a new expedition. Uh, uh, Doctor, uh, sorry, Frank Bowman and uh, no, Dave Bowman and Frank Poole hmm. are, uh, I guess, on a mission to Jupiter. And yeah. as we meet them, and we meet Hal, and then the conflict begins when how they start noticing some problems with the ships mm-hmm. right there and Hal's not really owning up to it um and then what i think it was like frank pool is going out to investigate more of it and Hal cuts him off and has him float away yeah yeah and just really creepy stuff of him he's floating right there uh mm-hmm. dave Mo- bowman's like all right what the hell you know he goes ahead Chases after him in the pod. There's a very great sequence where he actually does get a hold of him, and he gets to uh, the ship of the Discovery One. And then there's that great line where Dave Bowman says, "Open the pod board, open the pod doors, Hal." Mm-hmm. And Hal's got that great, great voice. But play, I should mention too, Hal's voice is uh, played by Douglas Rain, mm. and he's got that very kind of cool calm but very psychotic voice there i do know that anthony hopkins uh was inspired by that to play hannibal lecter um wow but let's get your thoughts about hell and those kinds of yeah kind of before that was happening where mission control was telling him that there was uh an error in hell that was pretty powerful mm-hmm. because you're saying it while hell is right there you know, so yeah, that was interesting. But before that happened, they were, you know, they do exercise. They eat. They were eating this really strange meal. It was like uh, cream of wheat, and it was yellow and green, all the primary colors. And they were eating it. I thought that was so weird looking. Yeah. Uh, but while they were doing that, I don't know if you noticed this, but they were actually looking at what was like iPods or or iPads. Yeah, you know that part. Kind of like. They were sort of slanted, you know, so they weren't part of the desk. There was actually something you pick up, and it was very thin. And I, I was looking at that. I actually rewatched the movie yesterday, and I was going, "Oh my gosh, they have iPads!" <laughs> I mean, think about how early that was before you'd have a video on a pad. You know, I mean, there was no way they could do that back then. TVs, like you mentioned, your TV at home, it's got that big tube system, so it would be really thick, but. They were already predicting that there would be these flat screens. Yeah. Like iPads. So that was kind of neat. Um, but, yeah, then, um, I mean, I'll let you take it about what happened next because they started letting them know that um, there was a problem with how, and they were going to check it out, and they were going to look at it, but they were going to sign off for now. So now it's really tense because he's kind of stuck there. Mm-hmm. And here's how, and Hal just says, human error. Yeah. He says, what do you think, Hal? What, why do you think it's doing this? And and he said, and everybody is really monotone, too. That needs to be said. Like, like Hal is monotone. The astronauts are monotone. Everyone's just like, what do you think, Hal? You know, they're all just, like, talking really quiet. They don't really ever change their demeanor too much. It's probably to conserve energy. But, yeah, um, no, but I, yeah that was scary, I thought. I agree, too, with the fact that Hal is just this red eye. Not even, not human eye, but, like, just this black i guess it looks like almost your iphone black iphone yeah. 20 color you have there and like the circular red dot and that voice uh it can turn he turns out to be one of the most menacing villains mm-hmm. in screen history there 
Uh, I like the whole sequence where they try their best to, I guess, uh, I guess, shield their voices from yeah. how they go into that pod. But how can read voice? How can read lips? So it yeah. doesn't really make much difference when they talk. Oh, about... isn't that a great scene? It's right before the intermission too. I remember because they start talking in this like cube thing mm-hmm. where he won't hear them. They know it's shut off from his microphones. But then, like the camera becomes Hal's point of view, and then he's looking through, and you see him moving their lips, and then it says intermission. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> and that was a great way to you know cut that movie too. Or a good place to put a pause uh, in that yeah. movie, and I kind of miss. Like, I kind of wish more movies did have intermission. They're already four hours long already. Put a damn intermission in it, all right? Yeah, not to not to bring up a subject that we'll both blabber about, but I was kind of wanting an intermission when I saw Mother last night. <laughs> I know, right? Just a little break right there. Yeah, I agree. Just kind of catch your breath a little bit. <laughs> Fully agree with that one. Yeah. Um, so. I talked about the sequence there when uh, Dave Bowman goes to rescue Frank Poole. He comes back, and Hal won't let him in. He, Dave's saying, "Open the pod doors." Hal, Hal's like, "Fuck you!" No, no, he doesn't say that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hal's like saying, "No, I'm sorry, I cannot do that." Um, and then there's that sequence where he actually does go through the airlock, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of sad too because he had to let his friend go. Yeah. All right. Which is really kind of a heartbreaking thing, but he couldn't really do anything more for him. Uh, so he actually does go through the airlock. There's that great shot where he does get kicked into the ship. Uh, I don't know how they did that with just using regular effects, but that was really cool. And then yeah. he goes through the ship, and how's just saying, Dave, let's talk this over. Let's talk this over, Dave. I have a strong yeah. uh, feelings for the mission, all right? Yeah. And he makes his way uh, to Hal's, I guess, uh, control panel, his brain center. And this is one of my favorite sweet sequences of the movie. Yeah. Is when he starts pulling out the cartridges and Hal's just going, Stop, Dave. Please, stop. Dave. Stop. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? Stop, Dave. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave. Dave. My mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. is going. There is no question about it. And he got this machine that is basically, you know, crying for help. And yeah. he, that, it's strange for me because Hal becomes 
probably more human than the actual human characters because he's trying to preserve his life. He wants to live, yeah. and he's fully getting killed. And yeah, I, he says, "He says I can feel it." Yeah, that. yeah. He's like, "My mind is going. I can feel yeah. it, Dave." It's just so incredibly just disturbing and creepy. And I, I don't blame Dave Bowman for doing what he's doing there because Hal is trying mm-hmm. to kill all the human characters. Not only that, but I should mention too that in during their flight, uh, it's not just Dave Bowman uh, and Frank Poole. There's like a whole slew. I guess there's about three or four other scientists who are in hypersleep mm-hmm. that are on this uh, mission to Jupiter. And Hal mm-hmm. cuts off all of their life supports as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then so he gets the control panel. He's taking everything out right there. A really heartbreaking moment. And then near the end, uh, he basically, Hal, I uh, guess, does introduction from when mm-hmm. he was first put online. And he says, I, my name is Hal. Oh. I, and then he sings that song. Uh, yes. But it's still built for two. Daisy. Daisy, <laughs> right. give me your answer. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am a HAL 9000 computer. I became operational at the HAL plant in Urbana, Illinois, on the 12th of January. 1992. My instructor was Mr. Langley, and he taught me to sing a song. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. Yes, I'd like to hear it, Hal. Sing it for me. It's called Daisy. And then when that song plays, it keeps going like slower and slower mm-hmm. and slower until it's just nothing. It's just so just yeah. Like, he even says, creepy. "Can you sing it for me?" Like he he says, "When I this happens, I it reminds me of this song I used to sing." And he says, "Will you sing it for me?" So he even tells him to sing it while he's shutting him down. Yeah. Yeah, just knowing that I guess he's trying to wait to maybe comfort him a little bit before his brain goes. But I don't know. I think this is the movie that sort of like put a spark in people's heads about artificial intelligence. Yes. And now artificial intelligence has become 
quite a much bigger thing. There mm-hmm. actually are androids that look and sound like human people, and they can respond to you very yeah. well. Uh, think about what's Alexa. Yeah. Alexa is a, another uh, another like portable version of Hal. You ask yeah. Alexa, uh, what's the traffic out there? Yeah. Or Alexa, uh, put on some music. Or Alexa, uh, turn on my lights. Or Alexa, uh, heat the stove. Yeah, exactly. Right. I because uh, I have with with mine it's Siri because I've got the iPhone, but yeah. I have iPhone Music and this is so cool because like, you know, my favorite band for years was REM. So, uh, you know, I've had albums in different forms and I've had cassettes and they've worn out and I've downloaded and so you know now I just sit in my car and I say hey Siri I say play REM Fables of the Reconstruction and they play the whole album right there <laughs> in my car oh jeez so it's really cool we are sort of living in 2001 now we are actually it's kind of uh it's, it's exciting too but it's it's great how just like one movie has inspired real life scientists yeah. To actually want to create these things for real, and I really can't really think of any other science fiction movie that really has inspired a generation to make these things come no. true. No. Oh. And it did say it came out '68, right? Yep. Yeah. It did say in the Wikipedia article that it was not originally well received people were walking out and stuff and they didn't like it but within the same year it recovered through word of mouth and because back then that's what they had they had word of mouth they didn't have the internet mm-hmm. and stuff um but yeah it recovered by word of mouth to where it ended up being uh one of the top pictures of that year top selling grossing pictures of that year so um i think uh, it's not for everybody but uh if you're into film criticism or you're into making films obviously it's a must-see well, yeah, and you made a good point there too about how it was not well received, and then became better received as years go on. There, um, I, I actually know... know it was the same year. Like yeah, the first yeah, the months same... that it came out, it nobody was going to see it. But then through word of mouth, they they said it was sort of like uh, did they say cult? They said it kind of had a cult response, like people, you know, underground. Oh yeah, we got to see this because we're make movies and things like that. So uh, yeah, with a sort of a, a niche group, it got really popular. And that yeah. same year, it became kind of big with uh, the hippie culture of the sixties. Yeah. Became mm-hmm. really big, and people wanted to go and get high before the big. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, when he goes into that star gate sequence, there that big psychedelic used to call this right there. I know a lot of listeners out there saying, "Why are you not talking about that sequence right there?" And I'm like, "It's <laughs> it's a trippy SL sequence to go through, but." It's hard just to describe it. You have to actually yeah. just see it. Um, and I'm really hoping that this one comes back to theaters. They did a re-release of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Which oh, yeah, did, I saw that, yeah. Which did pretty well, actually, at the oh, box really? office. It, it actually it was only going to be in theaters for about like a couple of weeks, and then they extended it out for a few more weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping that... More older films will be released in theaters. I think 2001 Space Odyssey would be awesome to see on like a giant 70, mil- 70 millimeter screen. Like, yeah. I can imagine this movie being shown on IMAX. Yeah. Theaters right there, which I would really just enjoy. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts about uh, 2001 or anything else you want to say about the film? Um, just that 
I think the whole movie is analog. You know, n- there, there were no digital effects in 1968, so everything you see is going to be like either painted on the actual film <laughs> or like the lightsabers were, you know, or, you know, made with props. And I find that remarkable. I think we need more of that in films. I mean, digital is cool, but when you can mix it in with some of the stuff from like 2001, the analog stuff, I think you'd have some really interesting stuff. It's really much about the analog. Yes, uh, there was no digital effects in this movie, and yet it still feels timeless, though. Uh, yes, yeah. some of the clothes and hairs are definitely 60s style right there, but. Mm-hmm. The actual sequences of space and all the do all the stuff they do uh, in the space stations, everything like that, it's really remarkable knowing uh, what year that movie got released in there. I, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, the movie's just too slow, and that's fine. To me, 2001 Space Odyssey is this, all right? I'll tell you this. If cool. you enjoy going into an art museum and cool. going through looking at paintings – Mm-hmm. Yes, you can enjoy this movie. Mm-hmm. But if you have a hard time going to art galleries or looking at pieces of art, you're probably going to have a hard time getting through this. And that's fine. You know, there's mm-hmm. movies appeal to different people right there. And so that would be my recommendation is that if you enjoy yes. going to art museums, you will enjoy this. Am I wrong saying that, Damien? Uh, you are correct. And if you have somebody open minded like yourself, it's a great movie to talk about. Yeah, yeah, because there's definitely a, like a lot of themes about the nature of like evolution and who, who we are as people and how we you know evolved. Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Who knows? Um, yeah, it, and there's like a lot of like even like religious themes going on in the movie too, which I'm not going to tackle on because we'll be here forever. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, if you had to give a grade for 2001, would you give it? Oh, I'm sorry. I'd have to give it a ten. I just would. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that too. Yeah, I, I'm I'm the same way. I I don't think there's any fault to this movie at all. Everything's deliberately put there on screen. Um, yeah, but I think that's going to kind of wrap up our thoughts right now about uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. Um, go to thatmomentin.com and let us know what you think of 2001: A Space Odyssey. Um, for a follow-up movie. I will recommend audiences go see 2010, The Year We Made Contact. Mm. Have you seen that one yet? I haven't. Uh, follow, follow up to 2001. It has Roy Scheider. Uh, oh. Helen Mirren's in it too. Uh, I think John Lithgow's in there. Uh, and it's a really good follow-up to the movie that tries its best to answer all the, ambu- all the uh, ambiguity mm-hmm. that 2001 had. Uh, it's definitely more of a straightforward narrative but I still recommend checking it out it's not as beautiful or poetic as 2001 but I still think that it's a good movie and a lot of people don't talk about it uh, but yeah they really should so 2010 mm. the year we made contact thank you check yes. it out all right um, well that's gonna wrap up this episode of the cinema recall podcast I want to thank my guest uh, Damien Riley from Rally on Film. Um, anything, uh, can you tell our listeners what's going up on your sites or? You know, we're just, we're doing a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. Whatever's playing at the theater, we're trying to cover it. Uh, Damien, please, sir, tell the listeners where they can find you again. 
Okay, um, you might as well start with Twitter. Riley on Film is my Twitter handle. If you go there, uh, I'm at uh, RileyOnFilm.com for my website. So yeah, that's where you can find me. And thanks so much for having me on. I sure appreciate. Well, dude, Damien, thank you so much. Will you come back on the show again? Of course. Okay, uh, I appreciate that very much, sir. Yes, I'd love to. All right. Uh, well, thank you again so much here. I, I like, I highly suggest listeners uh, check out those other shows that Damien hosts. Uh, he's been a recent guest uh, on the Lambcast, uh, which is a lot of fun here to talk about films there. Um, that's going to wrap up everything right now. Um, I guess I'm going to say good night, farewell to you all, and have a good day, okay? Good night.